Welcome, True Believer readers, to another episode of Let's Read Spider-Man, the best podcast to break down hard-hitting dialogue such as, he's made that larcenous wall crawler look like Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, and Avon Calling, want to buy some cosmetics? Here to provide analysis for those lines and so much more is my friend Eddie. How are you today, Eddie? I'm feeling a little sleepy, maybe a little anxious. I got a big performance I'm conducting tomorrow, so looking forward to that. I, I thought you were going to mention maybe the Ayatollah instead of uh, cosmetics in this intro. Uh, I, got, I like pop culture a little bit more than I like <laughs> not, politics. Not, not the uh, leader of the revolution in Iran. My goodness. Well, if you want to talk about criminals, we could start with our first book which is from September of 1981. Stanley presents The Amazing Spider-Man 220, A Coffin for Spider-Man by Michael Fleischer, art and lettering by Bob McLeod, and coloring by Bob Sharon. The city's criminal syndicate is hosting a competition to see who will steal the most stolen goods with the winner elected as the new secretary of the underworld. Moon Knight is winning. Uh, Come on now. Why would anyone think Moon Knight is a bad guy? A three-second background check would exclude him from this competition. Multiple gangsters don't trust the former do-gooder, but they are too few objections to eject him from competing. Spidey catches up to Moon Knight, and they battle. Eddie, I don't think they have three-second background checks in 1981. (laughs) But, Eddie, this is the point in the book where we realize for sure that Moon Knight is a good guy, as you predicted. But also we find out that Spider-Man has been in cahoots with Moon Knight from the start. Oh, well, Moon Knight escapes from Spider-Man in a helicopter, flown by his assistant Frenchie. In order to win the competition, he is tasked with killing Spider-Man. Moon Knight tricks the criminal syndicate into thinking he's killed Spider-Man, but just as he's crowned secretary of the National Crime Directorate, Moon Knight and Spidey attack. They quickly mop up the gangsters, and as the wealthy Moon Knight flies off with a Frenchie, he ponders Spider-Man's loneliness. Moon Knight is another rich guy with a bunch of stuff to help him fight crime. A Spider-Man should have taught writers to leave this trope behind. Well, comic book lore would suggest Moon Knight is Marvel's answer to Batman in many ways. Which is why I do not like him. Batman is by far my least favorite hero out there it's just like, rich guy with a bunch of toys that means got to be the most popular he's the spider-man of dc Ugh. dc doesn't have a spider-man like i do they yeah I, I which is probably why i barely ever read dc books but no nothing even close to spider-man Eddie, DC. this amazing spider-man 220 doesn't waste time with a backstory for moon knight it drops hints at his multiple personalities He's got the uh, multiple personality disorder, by the way. His wealth, his success with women, and I think they assumed we knew enough without taking up extra pages. And the good news for that is they had some extra pages at the end, Eddie, and they used those extra pages. That's right. Following the tradition of Marvel team-up Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man has its own second story. All right. And in this tale, we see Aunt May involved in a caper at her nursing home. A rough young man is strong-arbing his feeble relative into giving him money, and then he steals, like, 20 bucks, tries to blame it on someone else, then he just admits it was him, and then he tries to strangle Aunt May with a telephone wire. She fakes a heart attack, plays possum there, and he runs off. Aunt May says not to tell Peter 
because he's so easily frightened. Speaking of fake, Moon Knight does put a fake guy in a coffin dressed as Spider-Man. It makes for a good cover, but doesn't Peter only have one costume? Eddie, Peter's quite the seamstress. Remember during Let's Read Spider-Man 157, we discussed him sewing an entire new costume because his previous one was covered in itchy brine? Yes, I do. And it got bleached out. He did it so quickly, though, I, I missed it. He was sewing the costume while he was on the phone with Deborah Whitman. I remember thinking, he's not paying any attention to this woman as he's sewing. He's so focused. So, oh, my. Well, let's see if we can uh, talk about a book that has Deborah Whitman in it. That's right. It's from October of 1981. Stanley presents The Amazing Spider-Man 221, Blues for a Lonesome Pinky, by Denny O'Neill, Kuppenberg, and Jim Mooney. While in his office at ESU, Peter hears an argument between a professor... Dr. Kissick, and an administrator. When Dr. Kissick returns to his office, he finds Ramrod waiting for him. Although the professor no longer wants to associate with his hard-headed friend, he is threatened into mixing up a batch of poison. Spidey bumps into Ramrod on campus, and they duel but old hard-head escapes when he chucks a statue at some civilians. Before departing, Ramrod picks up a vial of potent poison, able to drive anyone crazy. Eddie, anyone who wants to learn more about Ramrod, we covered this previous meeting with Spider-Man, first appearance of Ramrod, by the way, in Daredevil 103 back in Let's Read Spider-Man episode 80. His backstory was similar to all the Jonas Harrow villains. Someone took his damaged body and made him into, you know, what he was. Did did Jonas Harrow make him? They mentioned it was some guy whose name I decided not to put in the show notes because it was actually Moondragon who was creating a bunch of people to try and stop Thanos. According to her Wikipedia page, which I jumped over, it even said this leads to the creation of villains such as uh, Ramrod, Angar the Screamer, and the Dark Messiah. She was just making all kinds of guys to help her in this battle. Well, speaking of Jonas Harrow... Once again, ignored at ESU by Peter and passed up for a promotion from her boss, we see Deborah Whitman walking home crying. Out of the shadows, none other than Jonas Harrow steps. Harrow, posing as a psychiatrist, needing a new secretary, sweet talks Deborah into coming to work for him while also promising her he can help her overcome her problems in an unexpected way. Well, hopefully, Deborah. Does not do anything foolish here, Eddie. Yeah, nothing bad's going to happen. Well, we will find out, James B. I think my prediction might come true. Peter has decided to attend a gig his country western singing neighbor is playing, but when Lonesome Pinky gets on stage, the crowd turns ornery and begins fighting each other. Spidey swings into action, but is powerless to keep the crowd from murdering each other. Thankfully, Lonesome Pinky's melodious tunes mesmerize the frenzied bunch. Spidey swings off in search of a cure and in the process defeats Ramrod by magnetizing him to a scrapyard backhoe. As Spidey swings back with an antidote, Lonesome Pinky's voice wavers, but Spidey administers the antidote, curing all. The real hero turns out to be Lonesome Pinky, although he doesn't really know it. The musician is the hero! The story is very similar to a couple ones we read recently, but I like it a lot more. Good old ESU professors, Eddie. This guy, Dr. Kissick, creates a poison which is fatal in 90 minutes to all who drink it. And Deborah Whitman drinks it. 
This is the same doctor who makes the cure, though. Uh, he also admits to Spider-Man that he gave it to Ramrod because Ramrod wanted to kill 100 patrons because... Why, Eddie? He thinks he should have been the country singer at the club. <laughs> James B., I missed that the first time around. You told me that. I was like, there's more musician stuff that happens in this book. Can you imagine Ramrod singing country music? <laughs> Can you imagine him being so upset? He's like, I'm going to get an ESC professor to create a... <laughs> Fatal poison, so I can poison all the patrons. I've had some really terrible auditions in my life, and uh, (laughs) you are in a really dark place. Thankfully, I'm not, like, a supervillain, I guess, fundamentally. So that's not... Killing people isn't the first thing that comes to mind for me. Yeah, it's it's not a big deal that you missed it. This book really plays fast and loose with the plot here and there. I mean, just understand, too, that in theory, 100 people were poisoned, and then 100 people were cured, and there's, like no checks and balances on this here. Like, you know, hopefully everyone got the cure because <laughs> I mean, I don't know how they, it's, it's a it. large amount of people. I know. Spider-Man Spider-Man says like, it only takes, it out. he says it only takes one drop in each, each person's <laughs> thing, but whatever. Um, well, I, I did like the way that lonesome pinky is singing and Spider-Man is going in search of an antidote. It's kind of like the marathon book we read not too long ago. I just, it, the difference was that, Lonesome Pinky singing, his voice is like wavering over a court, like some time. Man, it is so hysterical to think about how Ramrod is a country singer. <laughs> he was also defeated because his head is metal. Yeah, he got like magnetized. And it's, what would you call that thing? I know it's a magnet and it's like. It's a scrapyard. Right, it's the thing that picks up all the metal. It's, and it's a crane, a magnetic crane. Sure. Is that what I, sh- sure. I probably should have put magnetic crane in there, I guess, too. It's fine. You know, so that's so he gets defeated. <laughs> Do you think Dr. Kissick is still on on staff after what he did? He, no, he should he should be thrown off, but Who's I Who's reporting think- him? If Spider-Man's going to like go tell the police, oh, by the way, go talk to Do- Dr. Kissick. He's making poisons. I... I would the police... I don't even think the police were involved. Did the police ever show up for anything? No. Like I think the, the people got poisoned, and then they got unpoisoned. Do you think they went to the police station and said, hey, I was poisoned earlier today, and then they did an investigation? No, I mean, they, no. Well, I mean, Lonesome no. Pinky was the only person in the whole of the book that did anything. He was singing along for some reason, because the bartender was the only other person who wasn't poisoned, and he's like, you must keep playing, because yes. weren't the poisoned people in some other trouble? Were they like getting crazy or something yeah they they it said it put them into a frenzy so they're like fighting each other <laughs> and lonesome pinky initially thought it was because of his bad singing but then when he started singing again everybody got mesmerized by it him. was but it wasn't it from his bad singing at first <laughs> didn't they start saying like you suck well and... yeah that was when they were ornery biff rifkin and deborah were there <laughs> it's true i didn't see them throwing each other with punches but apparently they were also ornery fighting players right up, yeah, up the ante. But I, I got to appreciate they brought him in. Biff is terrible, too. Anyways, continue, James B. That's okay. I, I just noticed this book involved characters from the Amazing Spider-Man continuity, like Lonesome Pinky, and I like that because the previous book didn't have any of that. It was just a, a one-off. But I did like the motivations better of 
like the storyline involving Moon Knight and the gangster I thought was better yes. than I'm going to poison 100 people because I can't be a singer, even though I did like to see Lonesome Pinky and uh, Deborah yeah. because they're characters in our in our story. They've so, been around a long time. Yeah, keep that keep that history going. And speaking of history, let's talk a little bit about the next book. From November of 1981, Stanley presents The Amazing Spider-Man 222, Faster Than the Eye, by Mantlo, Hall, and Mooney. And Eddie, according to a book that I read occasionally called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, Bill Mantlo in 1975 was the writer on a series called Marvel Fill-In, which... The title characters were those whose comics were in the most danger of falling behind. So whenever you saw him, and I know Sal Buscema was the uh, artist on those two. So if they're like, oh, Spider-Man's falling behind, they would have they'd rip out a Mantlo comic to fill in those spaces. I'm sure we covered a lot of those. Hopefully this is not one of them. At the end, we'll kind of check with each other and see if this is a Bill Mantlo fill-in or a Bill Mantlo real one, okay? Spidey is rounding up a group of first snatchers when he sees a camera store being robbed in rapid fashion. He tries to fight the speedy adversary, but is defeated by being thrown through a bakery storefront window. We get a long-winded backstory about how a cosmic grandmaster helped a chemist gain super speed and become Speed Demon. Also, I think he's called the Wizard, which makes me laugh too. Peter thinks he can anticipate Speed Demon's next robbery by guessing he'll be at Bloomingdale's. Eddie, Spider-Man tells the bad guys he has the proportional strength and speed of a spider. People call him a menace because of what they read in the Daily Bugle. This sounds like a fill already. He needs money for rent. And J. Jonah Jameson doesn't like most of his photos. Eddie, this seems like a filler. Go ahead and you finish your story. Oh, Bill Mantelow. Um, Sure enough. Spidey was correct. At noon, the fast-moving felon shows up at Bloomingdale's to relinquish the store and its shoppers of all their valuable possessions. Once again, he has incredible trouble fighting the high-speed hooligan. But in the end, he defeats him the same way he defeats all speedy villains. He trips him. Spidey returns to the bugle, where J. Jonah rejects Peter's pictures of the ordeal on grounds it makes Spidey look too good. Super childish ending with Spidey using grease... (laughs) perfume, a tripwire web. If you read this, it comes off kind of dumb. The only corny part I did like so far in this entire book was when he changes into Spider-Man in Bloomingdale's, he does it in like the changing room, like you would at like a store when you buy clothing. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, Speaking of changing, let's change gears and take care of some sponsor business. Okay, James B. Eddie, you don't want your daughter to get poisoned or your wife to be unable to walk when all her bones are broken, correct? Yeah. No no poisoning or bones breaking, please. Well, Eddie, for cheap solutions, check out the ever-expanding now Dr. Harrow and Associates. Remember that Dr. Jonas Harrow is a family doctor and rehab specialist, unofficially licensed in the United States. Come see him if you're tired of physical therapy and you have weak bones. Listen, we all remember that Jonah Harrow can also help with weak skulls, weak feet, anger issues, weak heart. These are all the things he's done, by the way, in all these comics. Don't don't think you've, I'm making this stuff up. Weak bladders. And now joining his staff, Dr. Kissick. He supplies poisons and poison antidotes for you, Eddie. Your one-stop shop for all your ailments and poisons is Dr. Jonas Harrow and Associates. 
not ABMS certified, Discover card still not accepted, consultations available over Zoom. Hiring office staff in all locations, see the ad in AARP the magazine. Eddie, I got to interrupt here. I did not even notice this before when I got the copy. He is hiring staff in all locations. Um, I don't know. You, maybe you have a friend who's looking for a career change. I'm not really sure what your wife's doing, but... We could open up a branch here in Michigan. There you go, Eddie. Well, Great idea. You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know if we have enough readily accessible ESU professors since those seem to be the most notorious for doing something malintentioned. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't... I, you know, James B., Jonas Harrow is now like a corporation. Is that that's what he's forming here? I, it just says Jonas Harrow and Associates. He's got somebody else working with him. Oh, now. it's like a law firm now. So, well, I, yeah, I think I, it'll be easier to sue him. <laughs> no, it's I, a company instead of an individual. <laughs> it's just it's just a company that you can get better treatment now. There's you can do it's a one stop well, shop, ne- which makes it easier for your you know. Thing, so. Next time I'm like passed out in a back alley with a small injury, maybe I'll. <laughs> Maybe I will not have the choice but to go to Jonas Harrow and Company for a treatment. Well, I have no good segue off of anything you just said. <laughs> From December of 1981, Stanley presents The Amazing Spider-Man 223, Night of the Ape, by O'Neill, Demetrius, and Romita Jr. James B., the top of this book, says Spidey's TV show will air September 12th. I never watched this as a child, but it sounds pretty fun. Okay, so this is 1981. Yep. Right. Quick wiki. One season, 26 episodes it was. Uh, the first 10 episodes are real A-list villains, and then it kind of drops off. Wikipedia has the full list of episodes, and they mention it is strange that he faces Doctor Doom five times, which I agree is unusual. As a scholarly grad student, uh, Roger Hotchberg heads into ESU's library annex late at night, but he is startled when the Red Ghost and his super apes materialize. The largest of his three apes attacks and inadvertently starts a fire. Spidey, who is at ESU, well, it is not clear why he is on campus, uh, swings into action and saves Roger. Yeah, the Red Ghost, a vintage, famous, Fantastic Four villain who with his apes could take on the whole Fantastic Four uh, just shows up for some reason. It sounds like a challenge for a for a student or for Spider-Man, honestly. Yeah. Well, it appears the Red Ghost has a facility to work out his apes in a loft in Manhattan. Wow. I hope his motive is something other than money because this guy has to be loaded. Meanwhile... Peter feels badly for Roger, invites him to a graduate party, which turns out to be more like a middle school mixer filled with bullies. After having a joke played on him, Roger flees sobbing, and Peter berates his childish peers. Yeah, and the peers actually feel bad, which is a nice message in 1981. Uh, Hopefully Roger doesn't turn evil and seek revenge (laughs) to be added to the long list of villains you mentioned who had this backstory. Uh, a few podcasts ago. Do you want to wronged, remind listeners? Wronged by society, they yeah. turn into villains. <laughs> sure. And you want to remind the listeners real quick of some of those uh, people on this long list you mentioned? Uh, uh, well, we said the Gibbon, right? And then... Uh, Ma- you had none of them. Ma- you said nothing at the end of the podcast last I week. should say you said the Gibbon. <laughs> There's many out there. I know someone will write in and help me out here. So don't worry, James B. 
No one writes in to help you. Honey. They just <laughs> someone's writing in to help me. I they'll do it. Don't worry. After Roger returns to the library annex, and so does the Red Ghost, who needs to kill Roger because he's the only person that's seen the Red Ghost in Manhattan. The apes attack. But Spidey shows up once again, and although the apes have various superpowers, they are unable to put Spidey down for the count. The police show up, scaring off villains, and we end with all the ESU ladies impressed that Roger helped save Spidey by calling the police. So the Red Ghost wanted something in the library? Yeah, it was some kind of math book, actually. I, I missed it. Uh, there was a lot of narration in this book, but we got no backstory about the Red Ghost and his monkey friends. Mark the calendar, James B. I think it would have been helpful to have gotten more info about the Ghost's powers and his ape's powers. He was far more interesting character than I initially thought. I don't know why I did so much research on this issue. I feel like <laughs> you I had... really did! <laughs> According to my research, this is the ninth appearance of the Red Ghost in Marvel Comics, and that includes sometimes multiple issues in a row. Unlike most of the other Jokers we run into, they expect you to know him from the titles. He mm -hmm. appears in the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, Iron Man, and, I mean, the Defenders isn't that great, but those are all big titles. You should know by now who he is. Real quick for you, Eddie, since well. I will tell you without researching it, he was up on the moon and acquired these he's like a russian astronaut okay he was up there with apes and you know he acquires these powers and the powers of the apes kind of mimic the fantastic four well enough and you know they they were up hanging out with the watcher and the watcher's not supposed to interfere with stuff on, on the moon and that's where they first appear with uh they're gonna be they're gonna be back too i can tell you i saw that well, there's a cover i can see in like the 250s where the red ghost is on it so well if, get, if see him again well, if you only read Spider-Man, you wouldn't know this guy. Because I am quite sure we haven't seen him through any book that we've gone through mm. so far. Which is pretty incredible to me because we've seen a huge amount of other villains. And this guy being so prominent in these other books, never once. It takes him 223 <laughs> books to get here or something like that. All right. Well, well I liked him. So uh, bring it on. More Red Ghosts. Well, Eddie, in our next podcast... We're going to run into some villains that you haven't seen before. There's a guy who looks like a pumpkin head. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> and uh, there's a guy with a bunch of rings on him. Uh, maybe I can't wait for that, but I can't wait, maybe. <laughs> also. <laughs> well, then we'll talk about some people that <laughs> you know already that aren't that impressive. Okay, James B. But, Eddie, we have a letter from one of our listeners. How wonderful. All right. This letter is from Hard at Work Nick. I don't know if you recognize that letter, that name. He's helped us out before with some little comments and letters and messages. Yeah, perhaps it's time for uh, an appearance maybe in the yeah. future. Good, good point. Uh, Eddie's <laughs> officially extended you an offer, by the way. But actually, the problem with Hard at Work Nick is he's a loyal listener, but he's like the furthest behind all the time. So oh. when he comments on us, I think he's about 40 episodes behind. I mean, we... You know, take your time. I'm not going anywhere. But he writes, Hey, James B. and Eddie, I just wanted to write in and say how much I'm enjoying these Chris Claremont written Marvel team-up issues. I just listened to the episode about Marvel team-up 61 through 64, which featured Super Skrull and then Iron Fist. I don't know about you guys, but I'm seeing an immediate difference between this writing style and the rest of the Spider-Man book writers. I know you guys, especially Eddie, express confusion with the guest stars and their complicated backstories. Yeah. 
but I found they handled it nicely, giving the reader just enough context to get to the story, and I'm sure will hopefully entice readers to check out other books as well. Claremont's narration in particular is a step above other comic writers, in my opinion, in combination with Byrne's competent art, though it's not great. These Marvel team-ups have been quite enjoyable. And then it says at the end, love the show, guys, and let Eddie know that his daughter Lily did a great job with her summary. Heart at work, Nick. I will let her know. Thank you, Heart at Work, Nick. Appreciate you right again. Yeah, Eddie, I, people really like the uh, Chris Claremont books. Uh, I mean, I think his X-Men run, everything from, you know, Giant Size X-Men 1 up until, I don't know, in probably the 160s or 170s. I really, I find that to be one of my favorite things of all time. Uh, so I understand it. Maybe the Marvel teams haven't quite hit us the same way yet, but... We treat our Spider-Man a little differently, and I appreciate that he recognizes how good Chris Claremont's done here. Eddie, if people want to comment on uh, Hard at Work Nick's letter or how these books were or want to agree or disagree with us on anything we talked about today, how could they reach us? You can email us at letsreadspiderman at gmail.com or you can message us on Twitter at letsreadspidey. I'm James B. joined by Eddie. And remember, listeners... Terrible country singers are better than... Even worse country singers with intentions to poison innocent patrons. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah. So the first one is the Moon Knight one. Yes. Like I said, doesn't connect to the story at all, but was it a good story? Real quick, yes or no? It was okay. Okay. I liked it more than you did. The second one is the Lonesome Pinky one, which has a silly plot line, but it ties in all these other characters. Did you like it? Well, I liked it because it was silly, but I also liked the musician saving the day by just continuing to play his gig. This relates very well to me, so. Sure. You can have that one. That book was terrible. Okay. <laughs> the book with B. Dimon, we both know that book was terrible. There's no need to discuss it. Terrible. And then the last one is the Red Ghost story. What do you think? Well, this one, like I said, it was a bit of a mystery to me since I don't know the Red Ghost very well. Uh, mm. That was the most intriguing part was what he could do and what his apes could do. They kept on turning into parachutes and nets and had magnetic powers. The and... shape-changing ape there. Yeah, The kind crazy. of the one that would battle against, like, you could expect Mr. Fantastic a uh -huh. little bit. But... At the end of the story, this kid, Roger, who was like super awkward and couldn't handle even being around people, they're all running up to him. They're like, you're our hero for calling the police. <laughs> uh, you know. And then he's like smiling, like with a huge smile, like he's he won't, loving yeah. the attention. Now he's He like, won't be able to come back as a villain. It's true now. BMOC, Eddie. <laughs> he's the BMOC.